Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, the blue Bible in front of you, you can find this on page 668. 668. So we're not going through a series in Isaiah. We, uh, we just finished up a series on the Lord's Prayer last Sunday. And so we'll be kicking off a new series in the new year. But this, this Sunday, we just wanted to pause. If you, if you were here with us Friday night, we were also in the book of Isaiah looking at the servant of God who would come and bring justice to the world. Tonight we're going to be back in the book of Isaiah looking at another one of the promises So this may not be the Christmas story, but it is the Christmas promise. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed." And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, But the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, the book of Isaiah is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons that it's my favorite is the fact, the way it's set up, the Bible, or the book of Isaiah has been called the Bible in miniature. The Bible in miniature. So it's almost as if, if you were going to pack the whole storyline of the Bible into one book, Isaiah kind of gets the closest. Consider a few interesting things about the book of Isaiah and the Bible. The Bible is made up of 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. The first part of the Bible, we call the Old Testament, has 39 books, while the second part, the New Testament, has 27. Well, Isaiah has two main sections, and guess where they divide? There's chapters 1 through 39, 
And then there's a second section, verses, or chapters 40 through 66. It's also interesting that what you find in that second part of Isaiah is a great summary of the New Testament. Here's how one writer describes how Isaiah summarizes the New Testament. He says, The second part of Isaiah begins with the voice crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, words later used by John the Baptist. It moves on to a servant of the Lord who is anointed by the Holy Spirit, dies for the sins of his people, and is raised and exalted after his death. It then moves on to the declaration that you shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And it finishes up with God saying, I am making all things new. I create a new heaven and a new earth. Interesting. So, bearing that in mind, it shouldn't surprise us at all that when we look at Isaiah 40 this morning, we find a message that connects very deeply with how the New Testament begins. So just like the New Testament begins with a message of hope that the Messiah, the long-awaited one, has come, well, the second part of Isaiah kicks off with looking forward to the coming of this Messiah. But it's not just the message that these two share in common, that the New Testament and the first part of, second part of Isaiah, it's the situation that God's people find themselves in when the message comes. In both, God's people are in this place of, of fear and uncertainty because of their sin. See, as the curtain closes on the first section of Isaiah in chapter 39, we see God telling the people that they are going to be sent into exile. For years, he had warned them and warned them to turn back to him. But they resisted. They rejected him. And so finally, they were going to suffer the consequences of their sin. That's what the curtain, that's what we see as the curtain closes in 39. But then as the curtain is raised on Act 2 in chapter 40, we've been fast forwarded into into the future, and the people are indeed in exile. What God has said would happen, did happen. So now, God's people find themselves living daily life in the midst of suffering and the fallout of their sin. And now they're wrestling with two questions about their exile. First question is, does our exile prove God has given up on us? I mean, we're not in the promised land. Like, we are not where we're supposed to be. Is God done with us? Does does he no longer want to save us? Or question two, okay, maybe God hasn't abandoned us, but doesn't our exile prove that he's not able to save us? Like, surely, if, if he wants to save us, we'd be out if he could, right? But here we are in exile. Maybe he's not as in control as we thought. These are the same questions that we're left wondering about as the Old Testament closes. Was God done with his people? Did he not want to save them? Or was it possible that he just wasn't able to save them? And I don't think those are questions just reserved for long ago in a far off place. My guess is many of us have struggled with those same questions. Is God just done with me? Maybe I finally crossed the line and he's, he's done. I know he's gracious and he's patient, but everybody's got a line, right? And I'm pretty sure that I think I've crossed it. I mean, just look at my life. Look at the mess I'm in. Look at this. I mean, I'm not in exile, but 
things are not the way they ought to be. And so when I look at the circumstances of my life, I have to ask, does he really still love me? Or maybe he does and he just can't help. Maybe my sin and my problems are just too big, even for him. Friends, if that's where you are this morning, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11, shine like a beacon into those dark places. These verses are a resounding answer to those questions, and their message is good news to God's wayward people. And the message is simple. It's take comfort, for God can be trusted to deliver. In fact, comfort, that word I just used, is going to be the dominant note of our passage. So here's how we're going to break up this passage and look at these verses. Four sections. In verses 1 to 2, we're going to see comfort announced. Comfort announced. In verses 3 to 5, we're going to see comfort explained. Comfort explained. In verses 6 to 8, we'll see comfort guaranteed. And then in verses 9 to 11, we'll see comfort spread. Okay? And if you're wondering, how, how did you break this up? Well, if you notice, if you look in the text, this is a great way to look for clues as to how we ought to divide it. Each of these sections is marked by a different voice. Do you see that in your Bibles? In verses 1 to 2, God is speaking. And then chapter 3 starts with, a voice cries. Chapter five or 6 starts with, a voice cries. And then down in chapter 9, it says, lift up your voice. So these different speakers tip us off that, okay, these are the sections we're going to be looking at. Okay, so let's look at our first section, at comfort announced. Look at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What a message. Speaking to people speaking to people who had blown it, whose lives had been just decimated by their sin, people who were discouraged, people whose hearts ached because of the lives they had messed up, people who felt so distant from God and wondered if he still cared, what does God say to people like that? Is it words of condemnation? Words of correction? No. Words of comfort. What tenderness and compassion from God. Don't miss. Do you see how God addresses them? My people, says your God. Even after all their sin, all their unbelief, it was so bad that they had to be exiled out of the land. They had utterly blown it. And after all that, God hasn't disowned them. He's still their God. And his message to his people is one of comfort. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now what's interesting there is remember, they're in exile. They're not in Jerusalem. But God is reminding them of their true identity. Their true homeland. And when it says, speak tenderly to her, it literally says, speak to her heart. Speak to her heart. And to speak to someone's heart in the Bible is to speak encouragement. It's, it's to put your arm around someone and tell them, 
it's going to be okay. There's hope. This won't last. There is good things coming. And here, God is calling someone to speak to the heart of his people and tell them and assure them they haven't lost God. They haven't lost his love. He's not done with them. The discipline that they are enduring for their sin is not the last word. God has a good future for his sinful people. So he calls for a voice to cry to his people, and the message is a threefold message of comfort. What does he want them to know? First, their warfare is ended. Their warfare is ended. Your translation might say, her hard service is over. Either way, whether it's warfare or hard service, the point is that the painful circumstances caused by their sin is finished. The punishment of exile and slavery is done. They don't need to live in shame or fear. They don't need to fear further judgment because the sad days of their warfare have ended. Second, cry to them that their iniquity is pardoned. The guilt is gone. Can you imagine this? Their whole lives centered around the fact that they're guilty. If they wanted to be reminded that they're guilty, all they had to do was wake up, open their eyes, look out their door and be like, oh yeah, we're still in exile. Wonder how that happened. Our fault. Every day was a nonstop reminder that you're guilty, guilty, guilty. You did this. This is your life because of your sin. But now he says, cry to them, their iniquity is pardoned. Guilt is gone. There's no more outstanding charges hanging over their heads. They don't need to live in fear of being found out or discovered of, well, what if he knows about that? Or what if that comes to light? He says, your iniquity is pardoned. It's been fully pardoned and fully paid for. Well, who did the pardoning? God himself is the one who dealt with their sin. In Isaiah 43, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. But how? How can he do that? How can he forgive and pardon their iniquity? Does he just say like, all right, that's been long enough. It's over now. Forget it. I'm not angry anymore. No, he he can pardon their iniquity because it was fully paid for. That's the third thing in verse 2. When it says they received double for their sins, I know that sounds funny to our ears. It's not saying that they got twice as much as they deserved. It's just a way of saying that payment has been made in full and there's absolutely no more that will be expected or needed to pay for those sins. They've all been paid to the last cent. But, but who paid? Some people, some people get off, off course here and they're tempted to think, oh, it must have been the people. Like they've been in exile long enough. They suffered long enough that like, your child sat in time out long enough that they paid for the consequences of their action. That's not what's going on here. He's not saying, Israel, you've been in time out long enough to pay for the consequences of your sin. As we find out later, the iniquity was paid for by God's servant. Isaiah 53 says this, He, God's servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's how they get paid for. Not because 
like you need to hear this because some of us, even as Christians, can still have the mistaken idea that when we mess up, when we sin, that if we just go through something hard enough for long enough, that'll make up for what we did wrong. That we actually almost feel this twisted sort of gladness to like, okay, I know I did something wrong and now this hard thing has happened in my life. I'm kind of glad because now that will let me repay God for the bad thing I did. That is not how your sins are paid for. You cannot pay for your sins. They've already been paid for. You've received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins and it's come in the form of a savior. This is God's message to his worried, frazzled people beat down by their sin. What does he say? Comfort. Comfort my people. It's over. Your slavery to sin, the guilt you carry, the payment you owe, it's all finished. And that's God's message to us this morning. To those of us who are weary and discouraged, who are frightened and uncertain, who are struggling with unbelief, if we're honest, God speaks tenderly to our hearts and says, comfort. I will not let your sins separate us any longer. I will save you and renew you. I'm not done with you. I haven't left you. I haven't abandoned you. I will give you true and lasting comfort. This is the first voice, and it's God's voice announcing comfort to his sinful and suffering people. Then in verse 3, we find a new voice crying out. And here in verses 3 to 5, we see the message of God's comfort explained. Look at verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here, Isaiah lets us in on something amazing. Verses 1 to 2 told us about this incredible rescue that God has planned for his people. But here in verse 3, we're told that this rescue, it's not just some program that God's going to release on the world. God's not going to send his top lieutenant or his most trusted angel. It's God himself who will come to the rescue. The Lord himself will personally intervene in time and space and history to come to the aid of his people. He's not going to stay far off and work remotely to help us. Instead, God's going to show up in our world. The king is coming to bring us comfort. And friends, this is the amazing part of Christmas. I mean, it is incredible enough that God loved us enough to save us. That should blow our minds. But the fact that he came to do it himself, that is a wondrous mystery. He, the theme of heaven's praises, was robed in our frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, the light of life would come. Jesus Christ, who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. And because the king is coming, notice this voice tells us, we got to get ready. Get ready. Prepare the way. Make straight the road that gets to us. That's where that road through the desert leads, to us. Get ready for the king. What does that look like? What does it mean to prepare the way of the Lord? What does it mean to get ready for his coming? 
We get a great picture of this in Luke chapter 3. Why don't you go ahead and turn there with me? Luke chapter 3. As you're turning there, what, what we see in Luke 3 is we meet this guy named John the Baptist. And listen to what John was doing. Luke chapter 3, I'm reading in verse 3. And he, John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was John's M.O. Like, we call him John the Baptist, so like we, clearly he's baptizing people. We could have been calling him John the preacher of repentance. Just doesn't roll off the tongue the same way. So we, but that's what he's doing. Everywhere he went, He's, he's a one-note kind of guy. Repent! Repent! John, what are, you, what are you preaching on today? Repent! Like, there's no mystery. That's what he's calling people to do. He's going around telling people to turn away from their self-centered lives of sin and to turn back to God and trust in his promises. But why? Why is that his message? Why is John over and over and over again calling people to repent? Look at verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In other words, what does it mean to prepare for the coming of God? It means to repent. It means to turn back to God. To quit living by your own rules and for yourself and start submitting your life to God as the true and rightful king. To come to your senses and say, what am I doing? Why am I going this way? This way leads to death and destruction. I'm going to turn away from that sin. And I'm going to run back to God. This is how John called people to get ready for the king. By repenting. And John gives us some actually some really helpful insight here in Luke 3. On what it means to truly repent. See, if you, if you read about what's going on in this circumstance. There were lots of religious people who were hanging around here. I mean, they were glad that this was the, the religious scene. They wanted to know what was going on. They wanted to be seen there. And they even wanted to get baptized to check all the right boxes. I mean, if there was a, reli- a religious ceremony to go through, they're like, sign me up. They were in the right places, doing the right things. But John sees through them and sees that their hearts are not right before God. He tells them they shouldn't just rely on their religious labels. Look at verse 8. He says, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't think you're good with God just because you consider yourself a Jew. Just because you wear a religious label doesn't make it real. If John were here today preaching, he'd tell us, don't begin to say to yourselves, well, we are Christians. We are Southern Baptists. We're good to go. Clearly, if, if I can check those boxes, I'm good with God. He says, instead of putting your trust in a label, what does he tell them to do to get ready for the coming king? Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He's saying, if if you're real, if this is not just a label, but the authentic thing has happened in your heart and you're truly repenting, live like it. Show that your heart has turned from sin and now belongs to God by the way you live. Don't just say it, show it. Show what's in your heart by living in a way that matches up with repentance. That's what it means to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's how you prepare the way of the Lord and get ready for the coming of the King. 
And notice verse 4 says, this preparation will happen. Every valley shall be lifted up. The uneven ground shall become level. In other words, God will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. When the king comes, he will find a people ready to receive him. Repentance will happen. And best of all, the climax of this word of comfort is in verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Oh, we, we, we use this word so often that I feel like it's, the edges have been dulled. But I wish it would cut us afresh to see this is the beauty and the majesty and the wonder and the power and the awe of God that will be seen when he comes. God himself will become visible and we will experience and enjoy his glory for ourselves. Friends, this is what we were made for. Like, if you wonder, what is my life about? Like, what was I created for? It's to see and enjoy the glory of God. And this is the central promise of the gospel, that when God comes, we'll see his glory. Christmas is how we glimpsed this glory, right? John 1 tells us that when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, God himself came, walked among us. We saw what he's like in Jesus. We beheld his glory on the cross as his love and his justice and his mercy and his wrath and his goodness and his faithfulness all met. And yet... In the first coming of Jesus, we didn't see the fullness of God's glory. It was hidden. The Godhead was veiled in flesh. But when he returns, when he comes again, he's coming in power and great glory. And we shall see him as he is. Our vision of God's glory will go from fuzzy standard definition to 4K. It's going to be crystal clear and it's going to shine and it's going to pop and we will take our breath away and all flesh will see it. And how can we be certain? Verse 5. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And that brings us to the third point. So far we've had God's comfort announced and explained. We've seen that God will comfort his people by coming in person to save them, forgive their sins, and reveal his glory. And the next thing we see is that this comfort is guaranteed. That's what the third voice tells us in verse 6. Look there. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So these verses, the whole thing they're doing is setting up this contrast for us. Two images. On one hand, you've got mankind. And man is pictured as grass. Talk about a flattering image, right? Talk about something that has little consequence. He says, you guys, you're all just grass. Like, it's there one day and chopped up the next. One minute it's lush and green and full of life, and the next thing you know, it's dead and brown. 
a hot wind comes along and the grass withers up and he says even the prettiest flowers fade and wilt. And his point is that just like grass and flowers, we are fleeting. We're fragile. We're unreliable. Grass is not permanent. Flowers don't last. And because of our impermanence, humanity can neither save ourselves nor can humanity stand in the way of God's determination to save. Even the best human efforts fade and the strongest opposition to God withers up before him. So we're not meant to put our hope in man nor to be afraid of human opposition. The world's opposition to God and the gospel sometimes I know can seem so strong. I hear people talk all the time like just Oh no, the world is, everybody's out to get the Christians and I don't know what's going to happen to the church and the gospel. Like, we're just fine. Because they're just grass. And when the Lord comes and breathes on those who oppose him, they will simply wither. God's word, on the other hand, is absolutely reliable. His promise to save, it says, stands forever. Human wisdom and human efforts, they're fleeting and fickle. But God's gospel word is completely dependable. When God promises to come and save his people and forgive our sins and show his glory, you can bank everything on that. Because his word has not, cannot, and will not fail you. So the question for us is, man, is this what I'm building my life on? If not, what else are you building on? What else is so certain Are all your hopes resting on the good news of Christmas? That Jesus Christ has come as God in person to bring comfort to sinners by dying in our place. That Jesus has received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins and paid it all so that now there's no more wrath, no more punishment that you need to fear. Is your hope that in Jesus we have seen the glory of God and we will one day not just see it, but share in it? Friends, this comfort is not just for the elite, not just for the few. This comfort is available to any and all. All you need to do is believe, to turn, repent, and put your trust in this Jesus, this good news. Well, how do you know? How do you know? You're saying, I don't see some of this in Isaiah, Pastor Dan. Where are you getting this? How do you know that when Isaiah is talking about the word of God standing forever, he means this good news of God's salvation through Jesus. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me so. Listen to these words of comfort from 1 Peter 1. Peter tells another group of God's people who are suffering in a type of exile, who are afraid and fearful. He says to them, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, your iniquity is pardoned. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Hear this. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable How? Through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then he makes it perfectly clear and says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter's saying, what Isaiah's talking about, you Christians know it. Like, that's the word that will stand forever. He wants us to know that everything else in life might be uncertain. We're coming up to a new year. I don't know what 2022 is going to hold. I never really did make predictions, but man, 2020 just blew that out of the water for me. I'm done trying to guess what's going to happen next year. But even though we don't know anything else with certainty, the good news of God's salvation through Jesus is guaranteed because God promised it and the word of our God stands forever. So God's comfort to his sinful and suffering people was announced in verses 1 to 2. It was explained in verses 3 to 5. And it was guaranteed in verses 6 to 8. Finally, in verses 9 to 11, we see that this comfort is just too good to keep to ourselves. Instead, these tidings of comfort are meant to be spread. Look at verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So we've seen different voices in each section so far, right? But here at the end, the voice belongs to us. We're told to get up as high as we can, go on up that mountain where the most people can hear you, turn the volume all the way up, and tell the people, behold your God. Look at who he is. He's saying, for those of us who know God's comfort in the gospel, we are called to spread that comfort. This comfort is not something just to hoard for ourselves, but it's to herald to others. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we don't really have any high mountains in central Indiana. So what do we do with this? He's telling us, use whatever platforms the Lord has given you. Whatever, however big or however small, like the biggest you got, get into the place where you can have the most impact and the most influence on people and loudly and fearlessly tell people the good news of God's salvation. Point to Jesus and say, look, look and see your God. Because we can say not only as the text does, behold, the Lord God comes, but in Jesus we can say both, the Lord God has come and the Lord God will come again. And what is this God like that we're calling people to behold? Who is he? Verses 10 and 11 give us two pictures. He's a mighty king and a tender shepherd. He's strong and powerful, and he comes conquering and saving with his mighty hand and outstretched arm. But those same strong arms that rule for him in verse 10 also gently gather his lambs in verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He protects us. He feeds us. He gently leads us. He carries us close to his heart. Sounds a lot like the servant we saw if you were with us Friday night, who is both gentle and strong. Friends, this is our God. This God who comes 
who comes to save his people and forgive our sins and reveal his glory. This mighty king and tender shepherd. This is God's good news of comfort to his sinful and suffering people. And all of this comfort comes to us in Jesus. This is what we celebrate at Christmas and this is what we long to celebrate when he comes again. When this God comes, his enemies won't be able to stand before him, but will wither like grass in his presence, while his people will be gently protected in his mighty arms. When he comes, we will say, as we said at the beginning of our service, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, would you haste the day? Haste the day when Jesus comes back in all his full blazing glory. Lord, we long for this story to, to reach its next chapter. We long to be with you in your presence, to see you as you are, to enjoy your glory. God, until that day, we ask, would you help us to build our lives on these promises? Would we not look to anything else that is far, far less certain, far, far less good? Lord, your promise is both more certain and better. So would we build our lives on the promise that you have come and will come again, that you have pardoned our iniquity, that our sins have been paid for, that you offer us comfort in Jesus. Lord, thank you that you did not delegate the task of salvation, but you came. You took on flesh to ransom us. And thank you that we have glimpsed your glory in Jesus and we will one day see it revealed in full. Lord, in the meantime, help us live faithfully. Help us live joyfully. Lord, I pray that this good news would spread through us to many peoples here and all over the world so that they too can find comfort as they behold their God. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.